Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a twisted tea. What do you have, Del? I am drinking a virgin margarita, and on this week's episode, we are starting off our month of cases that inspired a Lifetime movie. Andrew Luster was the product of wealth, privilege, and had all the advantages that a person can ask for. Instead of using these privileges to prosper, he used them to take advantage of those who trusted him. His case was documented in the Lifetime movie, Date with Darkness, The Trial and Capture of Andrew Luster. But before we talk about his crimes, we will explore his background. Andrew Stuart Luster was born on December 15, 1963 in Las Vegas, Nevada. He is the son of Henry and Elizabeth Luster. His mother was the adopted grandchild of Max Factor Sr. Max was the founder of Max Factor and the company was a cosmetic powerhouse that helped popularize the term makeup. It was purchased by Norton Simon in 1973 for $500 million, which is $3.4 billion in today's money. Luster was raised in obscene wealth, spending his childhood in Malibu, California, and attended Winbert School in Los Angeles. After graduation, he lived on a million-dollar trust fund with a $600,000 beach cottage. In 2000, Luster was arrested when a student at a local college told police that she had been raped at Luster's home. Upon investigation, police charged Luster with drugging three women with the date rape drug GHB, sexually assaulting them, and videotaping the assaults, having found videotapes of the assaults when they searched his home. On December 27, 2008, Luster's trial started. On January 9, 2009, Andrew Luster became a fugitive when he skipped his $1 million bond and fled. On June 18, 2003, Andrew Luster was found in Puerto Rialta, Mexico. He was captured by bounty hunter Dwayne Dog Chapman and his sons, Tim and Leland. Both Luster and Chapman were arrested by Mexican authorities. Luster was then handed over to the American authorities. Upon his return, Luster tried to appeal his sentence. The California Court of Appeals refused Luster's appeal, citing that Luster had been a fugitive. Long-standing precedence holds that fugitive that flaunt the court's authorities and thus forfeit their right to appeal. The California Supreme Court and the United States Supreme Court later refused to overturn this ruling. In late 2009, Lester filed a petition for habeas corpus as the final possibility of having his case reviewed by another court on appeal. On March 11, 2013, the Ventura County Superior Court vacated Lester's 124-year sentence, but not his conviction. Based on the trial judge's failure to state specific reasons for imposing consecutive sentences and ordered a new sentencing hearing April 4th, 2013. On April 16th, 2013, Ventura County Superior Court Judge Catherine Stoltz reduced Luster's sentence to 50 years, 48 years for the rapes, and two for the drug-related charges. Are you tired of the same old puzzles? Mix things up with Wongo Puzzles. 
Each puzzle is a custom design with intricate patterns and whimsical shapes that will keep you engaged for hours. Plus, their eco-friendly materials and commitment to sustainability make Wango puzzles a guilt-free way to unwind. They are 100% wooden puzzles. They'll last forever. Each piece is hand-drawn, so no two pieces are the same, and you'll discover some fun, whimsy pieces as you work through it. They come in a custom wooden box, which is perfect for storage and gifting. With stunning designs and unique shape, Wango puzzles are a cut above the rest. My favorite, personally, is a snow globe puzzle. It was great to pull out a puzzle and be done in a night and not have it on the table for a week. What are you waiting for? Go to wongopuzzles.com and pick your puzzle today. And be sure to use the promo code CRIMECORRUPTION to get 10% off your order. This is the most fun you'll have with a puzzle guarantee or your money back. Go to W-O-N-G-O puzzles.com and use the code CRIMECORRUPTION to get 10% off your order and get puzzling right now. Jenny, what are your thoughts mm -hmm. on Andrew Lester and his entire case? This is like the definition of the stereotypical, I guess, like rich kid that thinks they can get away with whatever they want. I feel like it's like such a cliche now in media, but I don't know if maybe at the time it wasn't as much. It's disgusting to hear you know, about anyone being sexually violent with people, but to drug people and videotape them and keep them around, I think that's extra sick and there's like something even more wrong with you if you want to keep these to, you know, either have power over someone to maybe blackmail or to keep them for your entertainment is vile. This whole situation with his trial and him fleeing is like so confusing to me and ridiculous. I used to watch Dog the Bounty Hunter. I don't know if you did, Dell. I'm curious to hear what you say, but I'm glad he got captured and. I'm glad he is in jail. I think deserves to be there. He probably would have gone on to keep doing this, as we know a lot of sexual offenders do. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I definitely did watch Dog the Bounty Hunter. I thought it was a pretty entertaining show, and I was always interested in just how weird and crazy the show got and the fact that they were doing all this and not being police officers but we'll talk about that more when we talk about bounty hunters in general yeah i think that andrew luster is definitely like you said the typical doesn't think that he does anything wrong the fact that he videotaped his crimes is just another level of how despicable and disgusting he is where he wanted to relive the trauma that he was causing other people. I also think that this case exemplifies really how someone's family can really help them try to get away with negative things. We didn't mention it, but his mother did allegedly play a major factor in him being able to flee, which like, I definitely understand, like, okay, moms want to protect their kid, but, like, your kid's a rapist. 
Like, why would you be doing anything to help him avoid justice? And I think that he definitely knew that the evidence was really strong against him. That's why he fled before he was even found guilty. He was just like, okay, I'm going to try to get out of here. And he went to Mexico and was really trying to live the high life, despite being on trial and then ultimately convicted of three rapes along with other charges. I do hope that the victims are in a better place. It's been almost 20 years at this point, and hopefully they've been able to, you know, heal as much as they can. Of course, there's not too many updates that come from them, but the fact that he's able to get a shorter sentence is definitely disappointing. I really wanted him to be in jail until the end of his life, but California is going to California. So hopefully when he gets out, he's not able to do any more damage to any women. Andrew Luster is an example of a date or acquaintance rapist. According to Britannica, date rape, also called acquaintance rape, describes the forcing or coercing of a victim into unwanted sexual activity by a friend, romantic suitor, or peer through violence, verbal pressure, misuse of authority, use of incapacitating substance, or threat of violence. Although some prefer the more inclusive term acquaintance rape, which does not imply any sort of a romantic relationship between the rapist and the victim, both terms acknowledge the fact that the majority of women and men who are raped know their attackers and the victim did not consent to sexual activity. It is sometimes referred to as quote-unquote hit and rape and has been identified as a growing problem within Western society. It is particularly prevalent on college campuses and frequently involves consumption of alcohol and other date rape drugs. According to WebMD, a date rape drug are substances that make it easier for someone to rape or sexually assault another person. And we're going to talk about them more later. According to the United States Bureau of Justice uh, Statistics, date rapes are among the most common form of rape cases. One of the most targeted groups are women between the ages of 16 and 24. Since the final decades of the 20th century and much of the world, rape has come to be broadly regarded as any sexual intercourse without a person's immediate consent, making rape illegal, including among those who know each other or have previously had consensual sex. Some jurisdictions have specified that people debilitated by alcohol or other drugs are incapable of consenting to sex. The first appearance of the term date rape was in a book in 1975, which is Against Our Will, Men, Women, and Rape by American feminist journalist, author, and activist Susan Brown Miller. The prominent feminist American-British lawyer Anne Alararis helped popularize quote-unquote date rape in a series of public lectures at Yale University. Rape crimes are more frequently perpetrated by people that the victims have confidence with and have known for quite some time. Nevertheless, some people's beliefs do not fit within the date rape scenario paradigm because of their firm belief in quote-unquote stereotypical rape. They tend to justify date rape and blame victims, particularly women victims, for the sexual assault by emphasizing the wearing of provocative clothing or the existence of a romantic relationship. 
Date rape affects victims similarly to stranger rape, although the failure of others to acknowledge and take the rape seriously can make it harder for victims to recover. One of the main problems of date rape attributions is the type of relationship that the victim and the offender shared. The more intimate the relationship between both partners, the more probable that witnesses will consider the sexual assault as consensual rather than a serious incident. Criminal ramifications for date rape is a complex and complicated situation. The criminal justice system urges the victim to describe the sexual assault in detail in order to be able to make a decision in court. Ignoring the possibility that cross-examination can be a hostile and disturbing moment for the victim. Jurors' personal beliefs and rape myth acceptance can be influential in their decision when it comes to evaluating the scenery, evidence, and making a sentence. Research has shown that jurors are more likely to convict in stranger rape cases than in date rape cases, often even in cases in which sufficient physical evidence is present to support conviction, juries have reported being influenced by irrelevant factors related to the female victim, such as whether she used birth control, engaged in non-marital sex, was perceived by jurors as sexually dressed, or had engaged in alcohol or other drug use. Some critics of the term date rape believe the distinction between stranger rape and date rape seems to position date rape as a lesser offense, which is insulting to date rape victims and could partly explain the lower conviction rates and lesser punishments of date rape cases. So before we talk specifically about the drugs used in these cases, do you have any comments about what we just talked about? I feel like I could talk about this topic all day, but I won't. I'll spare everyone from that. It's sexual violence, rape, all that is hard to talk about. It is, I think, like an epidemic, particularly like we were talking about on college campuses with the women within these this age range. And I'm glad we pointed out, we kind of talked about this, like, for lack of a better word, the blurred lines or calling it hidden rape. I think it's a lot of these situations where women feel like they can't say no. And I think that is the issue we should look at. We talked about this in our last episode about men holding each other accountable. And this is like the perfect example, because I think a lot of times if you ask a guy like, oh, do you think your friend would ever like rape anyone? They'd be like, no, because they're thinking of this stranger rape that is probably in a lot of people's heads, like we said, but I think if you ask men, a lot of them would say like, no, my friends would never rape anyone. They don't act like that. But I don't think that's the case because I think some men, the way our society is set up, they just don't understand and respect like women's cues and women's bodies and women's boundaries and people saying no. And I think that is where a lot of this date rate, like that leads to a lot of what we would consider date rape. It's a lot of, like I said, the, like the gray areas. Um, and of course, that's not to say like, oh, are we going to question if it's wrong or not? Because it's wrong. But it's so complex. And I, I wish it wasn't. But it's going to take a lot to overcome that, especially in the legal system. Because of course, you need to get as many details and information as you can from the victim. But it does re-traumatize the victim. So We need to think, like, how do we go about this without making someone relive one of the worst moments of their life? And I don't have the answer to that, but there's, I'm sure, lots of organizations and advocates working on that. 
Del, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I think one of the things that stood out was just the belief in different rape myths and how people tend to carry very like old timey opinions on what consent is and what it's not. And I think one of the biggest ones is if you previously consent to sex, that means that you consent to it perpetually, right? And we know that's not the case. And also, just because you show any romantic feelings towards someone doesn't mean that you are consenting to sex with them. And of course, as what always comes up in these type of cases, the false belief that somehow a woman is participating or encouraging her own sexual assault or rape by what she's wearing or behaviors that she's engaging in, like using birth control. I just think that that's one of the things that as a culture, we really haven't started to grapple with in an effective way. I definitely agree with you that men need to check other men about this. While I definitely understand that there is a sort of locker room talk that goes on between guys, I'm not going to pretend to understand it. I'm not a man and I don't understand reasons why they would want to joke the way they joke. But I think that at a certain point, they should definitely step in and say like, hey, like I know we're joking around, but you wouldn't actually do that, right? Because I agree with you. I think that guys will sit here and swear up and down that, no, my friend would never do that. And, you know, it'll be that friend that was showing signs that boundaries and respecting boundaries is not something that they really care about. And that's really at the heart of a lot of date rapes. It's not respecting people's boundaries, not respecting people's right to consent and not to consent, and not respecting the fact that consent can be withdrawn at any time. And it's not something that you as a person can argue with. And obviously, if you try to force a situation, you have committed a crime and you should go to jail. I wish it was for a longer time because something else that comes up in a lot of rape cases, especially date rape cases, is the fact that not only are they less likely to be prosecuted, but the actual punishments, like we said, is far less. I don't think that there should be any reason why someone who rapes someone else should only be getting two to four years in jail. I definitely think that if not a life sentence, it should be at least a few decades in jail. It's a serious crime. And the victim, while they may be able to go on with their life in a certain way, they will always have that trauma, always have that victimization. And I just don't think that a short jail sentence really is appropriate in those cases. As we mentioned earlier, and in the case of Andrew Luster, date rape is usually accompanied by the use of date rape drugs. Again, a date rape drug is any drug that incapacitates another person and renders that person vulnerable to sexual assault, including rape. The substances are associated with date rape because of reported incidents of their use in the context of two people dating, during which the victim is sexually assaulted or raped or suffers other harm. The substances are not exclusively used to perpetrate sexual assault or rape, but are the properties 
or side effects of substances normally used for legitimate medical purposes. No comprehensive data exists on the frequency of drug-facilitated sexual assaults involving the use of hidden drug administration due to the report rate of assaults and because rape victims who do report are often either never tested for these drugs or tested for the wrong ones or the tests are administered after the drug has been metabolized and left their body. Drug spiking is a common practice by predators at drinking establishments who often lace alcoholic drinks with sedative drugs. The two main types of drugs used in date rapes are depressants and psychedelics. We'll go over depressants first. Researchers agree that the drug most commonly involved in drug-facilitated sexual assaults is alcohol, which the victim has consumed voluntarily in most cases. In most jurisdictions, alcohol is legal and readily available and is used in the majority of sexual assaults. Many perpetrators use alcohol because their victims often drink it willingly and can be encouraged to drink enough to lose inhibitions or consciousness. Sex with an unconscious victim is considered rape in most jurisdictions. And some assailants have committed quote-unquote rapes of convenience, assaulting a victim after he or she had become unconscious from drinking too much. The increase of sexual assaults on college campuses has been attributed to the social expectations of students to participate in alcohol consumption. Social norm dictates that students drink heavily and engage in casual sex. Various studies have concluded the following. On average, at least 50% of sexual assault cases are associated with alcohol use. On college campuses, 75% of the perpetrators and 55% of the victims had been drinking alcohol. In 2002, more than 70,000 students between the ages of 18 and 24 were victims of alcohol-related sexual assault in the U.S. Benzodiazepines, tranquilizers such as Valium, Librium, Clonopin, Xanax, and Ativan are, dis- are prescribed to treat anxiety, panic attacks, insomnia, and several other conditions and are also frequently used recreationally. Benzodiazepines are often used in drug-facilitated sexual assaults, with the most notorious being Rohypnol, also known as Rupees, Rope, and Roaches. Rohypnol pills are typically small and dissolve readily into drinks without significantly affecting their taste or color, allowing the pills to be easily administered to victims without their knowledge. Gamma-hydroxybutrite, GHB, is a central nervous system depressant. It has no odor and tastes salty, but the taste can be masked when mixed in a drink. GHB is used recreationally to stimulate euphoria, to increase sociability, to promote libido and lower inhibitions. The National Drug Intelligence Center, or NDIC, says that in the United States, GHB has surpassed rohypnol as the substance most commonly used in drugs facilitated sexual assaults, likely because GHB is much more easily available, cheaper, and leaves the body quicker. This is the drug used by Andrew Luster to incapacitate his victims. The second category is psychedelics. Ayahuasca has been used in some retreats to sexually assault ayahuasca tourists. MDMA, commonly known as ecstasy, is an empathogen. Empathogens are a class of psychoactive drugs that produce experiences of emotional, communal, 
oneness, relatedness, emotional openness, that is empathy or sympathy. Although it's not sedating like other date rape drugs, it has been used to facilitate sexual assault. It can increase disabilitation and sexual desire. Several devices have in recent years been developed to detect the presence of date rape drugs, many designed with discreteness in mind. One developed by two Tel Aviv University researchers is a sensor for GHB and ketamine, but appears similar to a straw and sends a text to the user's phone to warn them. In 2022, another quote-unquote smart straw product was designed by students at the University of Nandis, a non-electronic stainless steel straw, including a ring that would change colors in the presence of GHB, rohypnol, or ketamine. Another design by four North Carolina State University students is a nail polish that changes colors in the presence of date rape drugs. Several others have been designed with these color-changing mechanisms in mind. Uh, Jenny, do you have any final thoughts about date rape? It's just disgusting and despicable that people, how far people will go to get what they want, essentially. And that can be using these drugs to take advantage of someone and rape someone. I don't understand it. I mean, I guess it's like very much premeditation if you can prove that someone gave this to you, in my opinion. I've just heard like so many horror stories about people, none for like people I know, thankfully, but you know, and when you watch Dateline and whatnot, hearing about people being drugged and then raped is just terrifying. It's so sad. I don't know. It's just upsetting to hear about. What are you thinking? I definitely agree with you. And I do hope that they continue the research and to, being able to detect if there is a presence of date rape drugs. It's a sad state of our society that we even have to have these devices, but I am happy that they're there. Hopefully there's also more criminal justice research so that we're able to get a better idea of the prevalence of this, and that will go into better education and prevention of these types of crimes. Yeah, it, it is really nice to see all of these changes. It's inspiring. I know some people do like to criticize these and say, like, I guess kind of say that that's not really in touch with the issue. Can you hear that car across the street? <laughs> it's like a big. Okay, good. It's like a bass bumping really loud. I know that some people do like to not necessarily criticize these, but I guess point out that this doesn't solve the problem and the problem being that people think they can drug and rape people. But in my opinion, that is not going to go away. People, people committing rapes, sexual assaults, if they're going to do it, they're going to do it. They're going to find a way. So if people can protect themselves and maybe feel safer going out, I'm all for it. Andrew Luster was caught by bounty hunters while on the run from his criminal charges. A bounty hunter is a private agent working for a bail bondsman who captures fugitives or criminals for a commission or bounty. The occupation, officially known as a bail enforcement agent or a fugitive recovery agent, has traditionally operated outside the legal constraints that govern police officers and other agents of the state. 
This is because a bail agreement between a defendant and a bail bondsman is essentially a civil contract that is incumbent upon the bondsman to enforce. Bounty hunters typically hired by a bail bondsman enjoy significant legal privileges, such as forcibly entering a defendant's home without probable cause or a search warrant. However, since they are not police officers, bounty hunters are exposed to legal liabilities from which agents of the state are protected. As these immunities enable police to perform their functions effectively without fear of lawsuits. The practice historically existed in many parts of the world. However, as of the 21st century, it is found almost exclusively. I shouldn't laugh when I say that. <laughs> However, as of the 21st century, it is found almost exclusively in the United States, as the practice is illegal under the laws of most other countries. As of 2008, four states, Illinois, Kentucky, Oregon, and Wisconsin, prohibited the practice as they have abolished commercial bail bonds and banned the commercial bail bonds industry within their borders. As of 2012, Nebraska and Maine similarly prohibit bail bonds. The states of Texas and California require a license to engage in bounty hunting, while other states may have no restrictions. International extradition exists only by authority of an international treaty with the nation where the fugitive is located. Extradition treaties limit extradition to certain offenses and not all fugitives can be extradited. Generally, the crime being charged against the fugitive must be recognized as a crime in the jurisdiction from which extradition is being sought. Bail fugitive recovery agents may run into serious legal problems if they try to apprehend fugitives outside the U.S., where they have no legal authority to arrest and taking a person into custody could be charged as kidnapping or some other serious crime. While the United States government and most states recognize a bail agent or fugitive recovery agent's power of arrest, the governments in other countries, including sovereign Native American territories, Territories within the U.S. do not recognize a bail agent's or fugitive recovery agent's powers of arrest. This is the case with Dog Chapman when he apprehended Andrew Luster in Mexico. There has been legal action against bounty hunters. Several bounty hunters have been arrested for killing the fugitive or apprehending the wrong individuals mistaking innocent people for fugitives. Unlike police officers, again, they have no legal protections against injuries to non-fugitives and few legal protections against injuries to their targets. Bounty hunter Daniel Keir pursued and abducted Sidney Jaff at a residence in Canada and returned him to Florida to face trial. He was then extradited to Canada in 1983 and convicted of kidnapping. Bounty hunters exist in the broad spectrum of citizens' arrests. A citizen's arrest is an arrest made by a private citizen. That is, a person who is not acting as a sworn law enforcement official. In common law jurisdictions, the practice dates back to medieval England and the English common law in which sheriffs encourage ordinary citizens to help apprehend lawbreakers. Anyone who makes a citizen's arrest can find themselves facing possible lawsuits or criminal charges, uh, such as charges of false imprisonment, unlawful restraint, kidnapping, or wrongful arrest if the wrong person is apprehended or a suspect's civil rights are violated. This is especially true when police forces are attempting to determine who the aggressor is.
private citizens, like bounty hunters, do not enjoy the same immunity from civil liability when making arrests on other private citizens as police officers do. In the United States, a private person may arrest another without a warrant for a crime occurring in their presence. However, the crimes for which this person is permitted vary by state. In general, a private person is justified in using non-deadly force upon another if they reasonably believe that another person is committing a felony or a misdemeanor amount amounting to a breach of the peace, and the force used is necessary to prevent further commission of the offense and to apprehend the offender. The force must be reasonable under the circumstances to restrain the individual arrested. This includes the nature of the offense and the amount of force required to overcome resistance. In Texas, a civilian may use reasonable force, including deadly force if reasonable, to prevent an escape from, an, from a lawful citizen's arrest. In some states of the United States, the courts recognize a common law shopkeeper's privilege under which a shopkeeper is allowed to detain a suspected shoplifter on store property for a reasonable period of time, so long as the shopkeeper has cause to believe that the person detained, in fact, committed or attempted to commit theft of store property. The purpose of this detention is to recover the property and make an arrest if the merchant desires. In the United Kingdom, a citizen's arrest can be lawfully carried out on any person under Section 24A of the Police and Criminal Evidence Act 1984 for an indictable offense, including either way offenses in this section referred to simply, simply as, quote unquote, an offense, but with some exceptions listed below. A few examples of indictable and either way offenses are theft, criminal damage, burglary, assault occasioning actual bodily harm, possession of an offensive weapon in a public place, possession of a controlled substance. Although a person cannot make a citizen's arrest before an offense takes place, they may use the power provided Section 3 of the Criminal Law Act 1967 to use reasonable force for the prevention of crime. A citizen's arrest is a form of lawful custody and anyone attempting to flee may be guilty of attempting to escape from lawful custody. In Canada, there are blanket arrest authorities for crimes or violations of federal statute are found in the criminal code. In Canada, a criminal offense is any offense that is created by a federal statute. There are no quote-unquote provisional crimes. The criminal code provisions related to citizens' arrests were changed in 2012 by the Citizens' Arrest and Self-Defense Act. As a consequence, it is now possible to make a citizen's arrest in Canada in circumstances where a quote-unquote reasonable amount of time has lapsed between the commission of a property-related offense and the arrest. In Russia, any person is allowed to arrest someone in the act of committing a crime pursuant to Articles 37 and 38 of the Criminal Code of Russia and the ruling of the Penalum of the Supreme Court of Russia of September 27, 2012, if the person performing the arrest is certain that the arrestee has committed a crime. The arrest must be carried out with applying as little force as required for the apprehension, and the arrestee should be surrendered to the police without delay. Jenny, what are your thoughts on bounty hunting and the wider concept of citizens' arrests? I never really thought about bounty hunters like not having the same immunity and grace that the police have, but I mean it makes total sense and it's a really big risk knowing that that 
these people take to go after a criminal. I find it kind of funny and weird and not surprising that this is kind of only really done in the U.S. anymore. Like we said, we talked about Dog the Bounty Hunter earlier, and his show was always really interesting. And it is kind of interesting hearing about him in the news from time to time. He was in the news recently with the Gabby Petito Brian Laundry case a year or so ago. I have actually wondered how citizen's arrest works. So thank you for including that. I feel like it can kind of be like a bit of a slippery slope and just kind of like a can of worms, I guess, legally when considering like what you as a citizen can do. But then I guess like if you go too far, like what I know you don't have protections really, but I don't know if like your intention counts in a court of law. So I think it's very complicated. I don't think it's like a bad thing necessarily, but I can think I can imagine it being like a a complicated thing. And I'm curious as to how often people are using citizens arrest. I feel like it's almost sometimes people I think say it as like a joke. It's like your friends jaywalking like, oh, citizens arrest. So I don't know. I mean, I guess people take it pretty seriously. What are your thoughts? I definitely agree with you. And I do want to note that the difference between bounty hunting and citizens arrest is the fact that bounty hunting gets a monetary reward. And that's what a lot of countries across the world outlaw. And of course, the United States is the special flower in this case where a lot of things are legal here that are illegal across the world because it's tied to capitalism. Like I said earlier, and I definitely agree with you, the Doug the Bounty Hunter show was really entertaining and just an interesting perspective because it's something that you don't see very often. And besides in really high profile cases like Andrew Luster's case, the general media doesn't really talk about bounty hunting that much. And when it comes to citizens' arrests, unfortunately, Even if the concept on its face seems really positive and like, oh, yeah, we should definitely do this. If you see someone committing a crime, you should be able to arrest it. We are really putting the onus on a citizen to know the law and be able to act within the law. And that's not always the case. Honestly, when I think about citizens' arrests now, I really think about the case of Ahmed Albury. And the fact that he was killed during a quote-unquote citizen's arrest. And that definitely created a more negative perception in my mind about it. There are definitely cases where citizens have intervened and helped to keep a suspect there while the police coming. But all in all, I just think that we should leave the arresting to police officers. That's what we pay them for. That's what our tax dollars go to. I don't think that citizens should have the right to arrest other citizens. That just seems like, you said, a slippery slope and one that could ultimately lead to more harm than any possible good that it would do. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about Andrew Lester. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with a brand new episode focused on the murder of Adrian Jones. As always, stay safe.